Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Every week or two, I invite you here to join me to listen in as I talk to thinkers and leaders on a variety of subjects, always looking for those pointers toward grace, what Walker Percy called signposts in a strange land. And I'm, I've been looking forward for a long time uh, to talking to Esau McCauley, uh, for whom I have great respect. Uh, he is assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He's ordained in the Anglican Church in North America, has a PhD from St. Andrews, and he is the author of a brand new book, uh, well, relatively speaking, a 2020 uh, book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, published by InterVarsity Press. And it was the winner of the Christianity Today Book of the Year Award uh, for Beautiful Orthodoxy. And congratulations on that. Professor McCauley, thanks so much for being with us on Signpost. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I was uh, really interested in reading your book from the very beginning where uh, you were talking about this contrast uh, that, that you felt early on in your life between gospel music and hip hop. And as I was reading that, I resonated with it because it was almost the exact same reality for me, except it was between gospel music, contemporary Christian music, and old school country music, but very much the same yeah. dynamic, kind of feeling like I was in one world and then in another world. And it was uh, it was really fascinating to start with some of the autobiographical uh, parts uh, for you. Yes. And one of the things that you immediately uh, went to is the experience of being caught kind of between evangelical and mainline Protestants. Uh, when it came to yeah. debates and arguments about the Bible, how, how did how did you yes. navigate all of that early on in your Christian life? Yeah, well, this actually didn't come up until later in my Christian life. I, I, I've never met an evangelical or mainline Christian. I didn't even meet any white Christians really, and to have significant relationships with them until I went to college. And so I didn't know about um, like in direct experience the, the world of, of evangelicalism. But once I got there, I found this really interesting dynamic where. Um, I went to a mainline kind of university, and a lot of the professors there were saying, you know, the Bible is horrible. The Bible um, is used to oppress black people, so we need to get away from the Bible so that we can have freedom and liberation. And I was like, well, hold on. Like, I grew up saying that the Bible was a tool for black freedom and that God cared about the bad things that happened to black people. And so in that sense, I felt alienated. And mm -hmm. then on the other side, in evangelical spaces, 
I was told that, you know, the black church's theology wasn't good or that if I cared about the Bible, then, you know, the social issues wouldn't be as important to me and I should just focus on personal salvation. And so I felt like I was, it's almost like when you go to a clothing store and like none of the pants fit, you either <laughs> thinking, am I going to get pants that are too big or too tight? Or you just decide to walk out of the store um, and keep the pants that you have. And I decided to walk out of the store and keep the pants that I had if that makes any sense. So sometimes when people reflect on, people who've grown up uh, in or around the church, uh, they typically have a sense either of the church as a as a refuge, as, as a place that really shaped and formed them in positive ways, or they tend to uh, reject and rebel uh, against the church, not yes. just in terms of atheism, but sometimes uh, in even in terms of their Christianity, they're trying to avoid whatever bad they experienced yes. uh, in their home church. It sounds like you were in the first category. Well, I want to, yeah, I thought the church was positive. The book is, in some sense, a love letter to traditional belief in Black Christian spaces. And, and I wanted to be able to say that it's okay to continue to believe these things that shaped us when we were younger and that you can have one, I teach at Wheaton, and one of the phrases that I use to my students all of the time, it's a sophisticated reappropriation of orthodoxy. And what I mean by that is that we can't just say, I'm just going to reassert the things that I was told when I was a kid. You have to go through those hard questions. But what I wanted to say in this book is there is a belief or Jesus on the other side of those questions that is still worthy of our trust. And it's not necessarily a deconstruction, but an adult affirmation of the things that we taught when we were younger. And I thought that the orientation in these gospel truths that I received as a kid were there for me. And I just like, I guess one of the things that you that you learn, at least in a black Christian context, is a healthy skepticism of people who claim to be your friend, who claim to be able to do more for you than Jesus. And I was just really skeptical of anybody who said they could do more for me than Jesus could. And I looked around and I kept just thinking that God was better. That may seem like unsophisticated, unscholarly or whatever, but I just felt like, no, I, I like the God who I encounter in the Bible as he's depicted there. Hmm. And I thought it was fascinating where you were talking about uh, sort of encountering initially that idea that the Bible's not authoritative. If that were the case, then the white racist fundamentalists were actually right about what the Bible teaches. If, <laughs> if being an African-American is on the other end of, uh, of biblical authority, yeah. then you're sort of conceding the argument in a very bad direction. I thought that was a, an interesting point and, uh, and one that I really hadn't thought about until now. Yeah, one of the interesting things, and I'm assuming that everybody hasn't read the book, what I was trying to say is that if you tell me that the Bible is racist and it's, you know, it's read rightly, it supports what happened to black people. And that meant that the, the racists who actually did it were the better Bible readers than my ancestors. And so mm -hmm. my ancestors came to faith and they looked in that same Bible that was used to justify slavery and oppression and say, I see a different God here. And when I grew up in Alabama, my pastors said that, that, that the God of the racist was a false God, or at least that the, the Bible reading of the racist were reading the Bible incorrectly. And so for me to accept the conceit that the Bible was fundamentally rightly read justifies my oppression means that I have to side with the interpretive method of the slave masters and say that everything that they did had strong exegetical warrant. And that just didn't make any sense to me. And so one of the things that, like, I became free you know, one of, one of the things that you try to do all of the time as a writer 
or a scholar is to find yourself. And you have these moments of real intellectual doubt and struggle. You kind of find yourself. And I mm -hmm. found myself when I said, I trust my pastor <laughs> more than mm -hmm. I trust this professor. And that sounds mm -hmm. weird because I'm a professor now. But I felt like it's hard. I, I, read the, I read the books and I read their constructions of their reconstruction of Christianity. And I just didn't find it compelling. Hmm. It didn't catch my imagination like the Jesus I encountered in church. It, it's interesting that you um, that you say that the book is a love letter uh, to the black church, because I think that comes through really, really clearly from the beginning of the book to the end, uh, is that there is uh, this sense of gratitude, I would say, for uh, what you yeah. received and what was handed down, the inheritance uh, that you received, yes. um, in a way that I think is uh, is really beautiful. And one of the things that you argue uh, early on in the book is um, well the well-worn path of black affirmation in white evangelical spaces is there if one rejects the black church, and then the reverse is mm -hmm. true in progressive uh, spaces yeah. as well. Uh, yeah. What what is it that you wish uh, that evangelicals outside of the African American experience knew about the Black Church? I think that um, really, I, I wrote an article a long time ago called Two Boats, One Gospel," and in the, in the article, I made this idea that there's a different kind of perception of America that emerges when you read beginning at the Mayflower and you kind of tell the history of the um, American store from the settlers on through today. But when you start on a slave ship and you begin to ask the question, well, how does America look from the perspective of a slave as you move through history? You begin to understand certain things a little bit differently. Even if you come to disagree, there's some sympathy. And so what I mean is, there's, a, for example, there's a strong emphasis on social action in the African-American Christian context. And in an evangelical context, that emphasis on social action is often tied to the social gospel and the road to progressivism. But that's what, that's what happens when you tell the story, the American theological story, from the perspective of evangelicalism. But if you say, okay, the African-American church is born in the context of slavery, and slavery is the law of the land, then you have orthodox theology, black faith, immediately addressing political and current and cultural issues. And those two things, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, marked the African-American Christian tradition from the beginning. And so we have this strange reality that when you kind of fast forward to 2020 and you see a politically active African-American Christianity, it is often tied to this perception of black liberalism that isn't there. And so I guess what I would like people to understand is there's the things that people think political activism signifies theologically in a evangelical context doesn't signify that in, in, in a black church context. So that's often like the big disconnect is that people just assume things about black faith. The other thing that I want to say is the best way to look at um, kind of black preaching and black Christianity is almost to think of the patristic period. The patristic mm -hmm. period, you can go back and Luther, I mean, and a lot of them aren't necessarily writing systematic theologies. They're writing sermons and they're writing, they're doing pastoral care, catechisms and these kinds of things. But when you look at what emerges from that, that whole wealth of material, the patristic era, you end up with orthodox theology, orthodox Christology, orthodox um, Trinitarian theology that kind of emerges from the collective witness of those primary texts. And then the kind of dogmatic treatises arise later. 
And so if you think about the early development of um, the black church, you see the same thing, almost like patristic typological exegesis and a lot of the preaching. But what you emerge with, though, what comes out of all of that, just like in the early period of the foundation of the church, more broadly speaking, you get like Orthodox Christology, have your scripture, Orthodox Trinitarian theology. And so I think what people really need to do is just take a step back and attend to what emerges as the collective witness of the black church. I don't think that people really understand, and there's one thing, this is not in the book, but what, what people don't understand about especially black faith is how little of it is in print. And Ooh. I have to be very careful when I say this, so I don't otherize like people and call them non-Christians. But people need to understand a little bit about how publishing and the development of ideas work. So in the birth of what becomes formal academic black theology, many of the evangelical schools or the theologically conservative schools were segregationalists. So they refused to hire black scholars. And those that were willing to hire black scholars were progressive schools. So that mm -hmm. means that the, the people who you saw in print came from the tradition of the black church that were accepted in white mainline spaces. And so there was more space to be a public progressive black theologian during the early era of the formation of black theology than there was actually space to be a, a more traditional um, black theologian. And so when people ask, well, why weren't why aren't there tons of books about um, black theology that feels a little bit more what you would call socially active and theologically traditional, it's because there was no one who was interested in hiring those people in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and even the early 90s. And so mm. we're only in about a decade to maybe two decades in which even evangelical institutions as a whole are willing to hire ethnic minorities who have a strong sense of themselves, who love the scriptures, but who are pushing directly into those cultures. And even today, to be in those evangelical spaces and to talk about social issues, even if you have formed the authority of scripture, is tricky. And so mm -hmm. we can't have an evangelicalism that puts certain boundaries around discussion and then wonder why there are only certain um, voices of ethnic minorities that are raised up. Because the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, as an ethnic minority scholar, you get more affirmation outside of evangelical spaces than you get inside of them. And so it's a dogged determination to continue. So and maybe this is what I would say. You get heat from everybody when you love the Bible, when you care about justice. You get heat from progressives because they say, why are you talking about this fundamentalist stuff that is horrible? And then when you're in evangelical spaces, you get all kinds of heat because you're called a liberal. And so it's just it's a really hard life. And what I would what I would ask for evangelicals to do is that they really care about um, learning from African-Americans in particular. We have to have the freedom to be us even when it makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable, especially if we're doing so within the context of the church's great tradition, which is where I publicly locate myself in the book. One of the things I think it's important to know about the book as someone's going through it is that when you're talking about African-American biblical interpretation, it's not, or at least it doesn't appear to me as I'm reading it at all, it's not yes. uh, some sort of uh, postmodern reading of Scripture as though yes. you're saying yes. this is the vantage point from which one can uh, see Scripture. Yes. Instead, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, more along the lines of what has happened with, uh, for instance, a lot of the work that's being done with uh, global uh, biblical interpretation. I, I think of an example that I heard that I, I think about all the time 
about a, a study that was done in multiple different uh, regions of the world where uh, the, the researcher would just tell the parable of, uh, of the prodigal son and ask for the yeah. person to repeat the parable back. And so there was one yeah. aspect that was never mentioned in Western Europe or in North America that was mentioned everywhere else, and that was the famine. And it's because yeah. it seemed incidental to the North Americans and Western Europeans, but it was something that everybody yeah. else knew exactly what this meant. So there was an attentiveness to the text uh, that, was, that, that was missing. So it seems to me what you're calling us to is the ability to see what's there and to ask what we're not yes. seeing as we read the Bible. Is that is that right? I think that people, one of the misunderstandings, misinterpretations of at least the phrase, I think people are offended by the phrase, not actually the concept. And the way that I try to explain it is to make, even make it a little even less esoteric than that. And what I mean is this, anyone who's preached or led two different churches um, can come to the same text, Right. They preached it five years ago and they preached it five years later. And they maybe they go from the city to the country as far as where they're preaching. And the very fact of changing the location from which you preach and thinking of a different group of people, it causes you to notice things in the text that you may have missed. So it's not mm -hmm. that you're constructing meaning. It's that the changing circumstances help you read the text in ways that you have not imagined before. And so what I say to people is once you populate your congregation— that it's all black, it's all white, it's multi-ethnic, it's poor, that changes the ways in which you're thinking about the Bible. Because you're thinking, how does this Bible speak to these people? And so what I'm trying to say then is that African-American biblical interpretation, one way of looking at it is when you come to the Bible with questions that have historically come from an African-American context, then you might see things in the text that you might otherwise have missed. One example that I use all of the time is there's a frequent criticism this says the Bible or Christianity is a white man's religion. And so I had to come to the Bible and prove that this is not the case. So I got to go into places and find where Jesus affirms everybody. Now, anybody can find those same texts, but because I'm, this is a, a beating heart issue for me, I might find things that people who might not see those things are less inclined to see. And so, yes, social location informs the kinds of questions that, that you ask. But as long as you acknowledge that there's a truth out there that to which the Bible gives back the answer, then the Bible remains authoritative. So I can bring whatever question I want to the biblical text. The question is, does the biblical text speak back to my context? Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about the dialogue between my culture and the Bible, I'm talking about the way in which my culture brings questions to the Bible that are unique to us and the ways in which the Bible speaks back to our experience. Another analogy that I use is I say in 1954, 1955, and Brown versus the Board of Education just passed. And a pastor of an all-black church is having to preach that Sunday, and a pastor in an all-white church that's largely segregationist also has to preach on that Sunday. They mm -hmm. both have the same biblical text. Those sermons are going to look different, but both of them can be faithful to what the Bible is trying to say. And so one way of looking at it is to talk about how those questions inform the way that we preach. If anybody who preaches in different places recognizes this is the case, I think what makes, gives people pause is when I locate that racially. When I say the African-American context offers distinctive problems, but that just makes people uncomfortable. But everybody who's anybody who's done biblical scholarship recognizes there's a German personality to German biblical scholarship. Like German biblical scholarship is different in its tenor, its tone, its practices than even British biblical scholarship, which is different 
again, than what we do in, in America. And anyone who's actually, here's the other thing, anyone who's read evangelical method and scholarship and then goes and reads a mainline text, these exegetical communities develop certain habits instincts that are then passed down. It just makes people uncomfortable when I talk about the fact that the African-American Christian tradition has its own instincts and customs in the past down. But conceptually, it's actually not that controversial. It's just the fact that I use African-American as a modifier because it seems that people get really nervous when the distinctiveness of the African-American context is brought out. Because I think there's a fear, once again, that there's some kind of liberal Trojan horse. And I think it's important to acknowledge that the one reason there's that fear is there are some people who do that, right? It would be dishonest to say there aren't people who say social location determines truth and the Bible means whatever I say it means based on my experience. And so in order to avoid that slippery slope, we try to deny any um, outside influence on the text. But I don't think that's a realistic assessment of the human condition, which is why, and this is what I'm trying to say, in the same way that my African-Americanness can help me in certain circumstances, it can also hinder me. And that's the same for any culture, which is why we all need to read the Bible together. And the whole point is, if we're all acknowledging the Bible as God's word to us for our good, we're all bringing our biases to the text. We're being honest about it. We can make up for what is lacking on another and then come to the truth about what the scriptures say. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Life is unpredictable. I think all of us learn that. Sometimes we learn it in good ways. Sometimes we learn it in really hard ways. You're valuable to Christianity Today, and we want you to be prepared and protected. And one of the ways that that can happen is by having a will and getting a will together for your family and to care for your loved ones. If you've already set up your will and other important estate planning documents, that's great. But if you haven't, Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to easily and affordably walk you through the whole process of creating a legally binding and state-specific will in as little as 10 minutes. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to take this vital step, and you can get started today by visiting morect.com slash will. That's more with just one O ct.com slash will and for a limited time you can get 10% off that's morect.com slash will well and even in the examples that you gave uh, some moments ago uh, there will be differences in terms of time period uh, you yeah. mentioned German scholarship yeah. think about the sorts of questions that were different in the time of uh, Karl Barth 
than, than would have been yes. the case before or after. And why? Because you're having to deal with the Third Reich and, and uh, answering how to apply Romans 13 and passages like that. Yeah. Which you mentioned, uh, Romans 13. There's a chapter on this looking into Romans 13, which is a, yeah. a, a verse that I think shows up often, not just in evangelical life. I hear non-Christians citing Romans 13 uh, yeah. some, sometimes in a way that, that assumes that what Romans 13 says is that everything that the state does is right. I find almost yes. no one who consistently believes that, <laughs> but yes. that's usually the, the, the argument that is given. And you talk, about, uh, you talk about some questions that are posed to the way that we look at Romans 13. Why is that important for us right now? Yeah, one of the things I wanted to be able to get at is to try to one of the one of the tricky parts of biblical theology is how to both honor a text in its original context and what it's trying to say there, but also put in that text in the conversation with the wider biblical witness. And what I say that Romans thirteen, I think I think any plain reading of it rules out violent Christian rebellion against the government sanctioned by God. So we can't say God told us to burn down something and we're doing God's work. I think Romans 13 says that. But I think the the rest of the canon gives you a lot of leeway on the things that you can do. And so you see over and over again, for example, the prophets coming to kings in the Old Testament saying, you are sinful. And because of your sinfulness, God is going to bring judgment upon you. And he does that not just to the Jewish nation that's under God's covenant, but in places like Isaiah, he criticizes foreign nations for their wickedness. And so what I wanted to say is that there's a difference in the Bible between submission to authority, saying, okay, I can't rebel against it by violently overthrowing it, versus criticizing political institution that fall short of God's standards. And I think there is just like a wealth of material in the Bible that says that you can both honor this idea that Christians aren't anarchists, that we don't believe, we believe the government is a gift for our good, but also recognizing the government is a steward of persons. And when the government fails in that stewardship, part of the Christian's duty is to say, you step beyond the role that God has given to you. You need to repent and change your behavior. It doesn't even necessarily mean the government has to become Christian. It just means that the government has to recognize that it has gone beyond that of which it's a steward. And so when I talk about Romans 13, I want to free Christians up to understand that. And we do it, but it really, like you said, it's, it's, it's inconsistent. So a non-controversial one is to say, okay, we believe that life is, 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 is sacred from conception and natural death. Okay, so we can say, okay, the government is just wrong about like what it says about the sanctity of life. So I'm not going to burn the government down for that, but I am going to say to the government as clearly as I possibly can, hey, you need to change these laws because you are a steward of a person and you should protect all persons. Now, that is not controversial. When you say, okay, are there ways in which policing needs to be reformed? Then that question becomes, oh, submit to the government, you know, then mm -hmm. that text. And so basically how, the way the Romans 13 often functions in Christian circles is I want you to submit to the government when there's policies that I like that you don't like. <laughs> there's policies that I don't like that I don't have to submit. But I think that what we really need to do, and this is what I think the, the real thing, is that if Christians can agree 
that what we're trying to do is pursue the common good and remind the government of its stewardship. The Christians of goodwill can disagree about how that stewardship is best exercised. And I wish that the church was having a more robust conversation with some kind of assumption of charity about the fact that we're all aiming at the same thing instead of de-Christianizing one another when we come to different conclusions about how the state aging in its activities. Because I don't think I don't think this side of um, the second coming, you're ever going to get all Christians in America or anywhere in the, in the world to agree on every political issue. You talk about uh, in the book, The Gospel of Luke, and I, I really paid attention, paid attention to the whole book, but I really uh, paid extra attention there because uh, this is my favorite gospel. I love all the gospels, but the Gospel of Luke, there's something, uh, there's something about it that has been God's used it in in my life in special ways. Uh, what is it about the Gospel of Luke uh, that that brings a, a different yeah. uh, category? Um, I named my son Luke, so you, as you can tell, it's, it was formative. <laughs> I mean, one one of the books that's in me is a book about Luke. Whenever I have time, but one of the things it's just like one of the things that I find particularly meaningful as an African American is that Luke is a Gentile, most likely writing to Gentiles about the fact that the Gentiles within the body of Christ is not some innovation in God's plan, but it had been God's plan from the beginning. So Luke is telling the story about how God's purposes have always involved the inclusion of Gentiles in and through the Messiah. And he does so at the beginning of his gospel by saying, I know there's a bunch of accounts of Jesus that are around, but I don't want you to know the true account. Now, the thing that I try to be careful with in the beginning in that chapter of the book is to say, I don't think that Luke is throwing is criticizing um, Matthew or Mark because he seems to like use Mark pretty freely, and so like he, like th- those gospels are in basic agreement. So I think that there's another set of gospels somewhere that might give Luke pause. Like, I want you to make sure that you encounter the real Jesus, Theophilus. And I think that what I said is that in the African American context, you see a lot of those same things. One, as I talked about Christianity being a white man's religion, we try to show that you know black people becoming Christians. This is some innovation in God's plan. God had always planned to convert all people as a manifestation of his grace. The second thing is we're doing, so, so that's the first part. It's like, we're trying to tell a similar story to Luke. How do we fit within God's wider purposes? The second thing is there were distorted messages about G- who Jesus was during the early eras of the African-American Christian tradition. And so when the slave masters would come again and said, you know, the only thing for you to do is to submit. And the only thing for you to do is to hope for heaven and that you're not fully a person. And we were saying, no, no, the Jesus who calls you less than human is not the Jesus of the Bible. And so in so much as African-American pastors corrected a defaulty, a faulty perception of, of Jesus that was prevalent at the time, then they were engaging in the similar work to Luke. And so I kind of use Luke as this kind of allegorical presentation of someone who's, one, telling how the the wider purposes um, of God includes all the nations of the earth. And this is the same thing that the early Black Christians said. We are part of God's story, too. The second thing I wanted people to say is that the other Jesuses that existed out in the culture that Luke was correcting is not the same as the Jesus that was being corrected by these early Black preachers, but it was a correction nonetheless. The last mm-hmm. thing um, that I talked about that was really, really, like my favorite, the favorite part of the book, I'm glad you said this, is my discussion of John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Because John the Baptist is this is this child born of these two people who I think had every reason to be cynical about God. 
mm-hmm. because they had known nothing but colonial being colonized. And I'm sure that most of Zachariah and Elizabeth, I'm sure that most of their um, friends and neighbors may have abandoned God by this point, but they remain faithful in the midst of deep disappointment. And when and, and when the angel Gabriel comes and says, you know, you're going to have a son and, and, and John is born, and it says the people are wondering what this child may mean. And so what I'm saying is these two people who have been faithful for a long time, when they had every reason to give up, this child is born. And this child is like this virus of hope that begins to infect the community. Maybe God hasn't forgotten us. Maybe there's more to this story. And so what I talk about then is that the early the conversion of early black Christians in slavery, when they were being dehumanized, when they had every reason to be cynical about God, it is like this, 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 this miracle child born of unforeseen circumstances. And the thing about John, forgive me to tell, give away the whole chapter. I don't care if they buy the book anymore. This is about Jesus anyway. The thing that's important, though, is that the hope that was seen in John was actually fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. So that Jesus shows that the hope that Zachariah and Elizabeth had was vindicated. And the African-American Christians who, who, who trust in Jesus, knowing that there's more to their lives than slavery and oppression and be, being dehumanized via the continued expanding freedoms that happened to African-Americans over the centuries. And at each point when those freedoms were expanded, you saw black Christians saying, this is not done by the government. This is done by the advent of God on our behalf. It means that their faith is vindicated. And so I think that like this, these early infancy narratives are infused with hope in the same way the early stories the black believers are infused with hope. And I can't discount that testimony. It, it influences me as a Christian today. The subtitle uh, is an exercise in hope. This this book is yeah. about an exercise in hope. And you just mentioned cynicism. And I don't know about you, uh, but it seems that I'm encountering cynicism everywhere, kind yeah. of a numbness yeah. uh, and uh, yeah. something that's gone beyond fear to just a, a hardening uh, to the point that yeah. I, I was having a conversation with another Christian the other day about a figure in recent church history, important Christian figure that had meant a lot in his life and in my life, and we're talking about him. And he said, I won't say who it was because for obvious reasons, but he said, yeah, this person has meant a lot to me, and I'm just sort of braced to find out that he was a fraud somehow because of, of yeah. all of the revelations that we have, we have seen. Yeah. And there was just a sort of resigned cynicism uh, there. And I, th- I think it really was a metaphor yeah. for what's going on uh, all, all around the world right now. How can we speak of hope when it really is, uh, it really is easy to give in to cynicism right now? Well, it's really interesting because the book was written with a particular, there's a particular set of kind of circumstances that led to me writing the book. And one of them was, I was watching, this was 2015, 16, 17, I was seeing some protest um, going on around injustice in the United States, around police violence. One, of, They interviewed one of the protesters and they said, this is not your parents' civil rights movement. We're going to do this differently. And that bothered me because I felt like, well, the civil rights movement was rooted ultimately in like this trust that in Jesus, like God can help us with anything. Mm-hmm. And then when I wrote the book, I wanted to say, it is okay to 
contend for issues in our society anchored in this hope that the God who we encounter in the Bible is a friend and not an enemy. And so what I've learned to do, and people ask me about hope all of the time, what I've learned to do in order to remain hopeful is, and, I, and I've said this probably in every interview, is that we have to ask our theological questions in the right order. And I become less hopeful when I get the questions out of order. And what I mean is, if I begin with what I see around me and say, mm-hmm. well, is there any hope based upon my current circumstances? Then the answer to that, depending on the on the day, may be yes or no. But when I begin to ask myself, is Christ risen? Because Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, is something that precedes the creation of the United States of America. So if the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty. And the world is a different place, even when they don't experience it as a different place. And so I have to, like, what um, what the last three or four years has done for me is ask me fundamentally, what do I believe? And I believe that Christ is risen. And so my hope for me is really the resurrection. And not even the hope in the resurrection is something that I like turn to, but I have to be at least, you know, Trinitarian enough to say like, I feel like the spirit of God lifts me up when I'm about to fall. And so I guess like the source of, of hope for me is the belief in the risen Jesus and the experience of the spirit who comforts me in my trials. And so I think that those tends to be the thing. And the other thing I want to say is that like, if those things are true, the resurrection is true. The spirit is here to help us and the father, you know, all of that other good stuff. That means that it's possible for people and it's possible for the church to become um, better than it is. And mm. the things that we see on offer aren't the final end of the story. And this is the hard part. The hard part about being a Christian in America is to both lament the state of the church and recognize its progress. Mm-hmm. And when they, when we're frustrated with the church, we, 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 we limit its progress. But the truth is the church is has made progress on a lot of things. And the hard part is to like acknowledge that progress without necessarily being satisfied by it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that like one one way of looking at it is I would say, and the evangelicalism could fail in this crisis. I can't speak to it. But one of the things that's relating to the crisis of African Americans and other people of color in evangelical spaces, including like the large exodus sometimes, is seen as a crisis, which it is. But the thing that people don't understand is that preceding that crisis was a large influx of people of color. So there's enough mm-hmm. people here so when they leave, it's actually noticeable. And 30 years ago or 50 years ago, that would have been the case. And so what we're having now is these midst of growing pains where various evangelical institutions are going to have to decide what they want to be. And so, yes, this is painful. It is ugly. It is messy. But the church can decide. It can choose, right? Even at the last. One of, you know, like one of the great things about the Christian story is it's not over till it's over. The thief is on the cross, right? Even at the last, the thief can repent. Um, yeah. There's this story that I was reading about James Pennington, who's, I used his title. It's called Pennington's Triumph in the last chapter of my book. But this wasn't included in the book. Towards the end of he was a slave who escaped. And towards the end of his slave master's life, he wrote his slave master a letter. And he said to his slave master, you still have at this moment, even at this late day, you are nearing death. You have this moment to repent Ooh. and become a better person. And I began to think about the 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 spiritual maturity. And like the work of the gospel in the heart of Pennington to write to his former slave master to say, even at the end, 
You can free the rest of your slaves and become a better person. The good thing about the gospel is our story is not over until it's over. And yes, things look bad for the church, but the story for the church is not over yet. Amen. Esau Bakali, the book is Reading While Black African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Really, really helpful and thought-provoking read. Uh, the Christianity Today Book of the Year for 2020, and I commend it to you to read and to think about. Esau Bakali, thanks for being with us today on Signpost. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Uh, Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen. And it helps if you leave a review there. It helps people to find uh, the podcast. And if you're listening on a smartphone, just tap the cover art and you'll find show notes, other resources, including uh, information on how you can get a copy of this book. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.